You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's good to, to see you this morning. Don't let the uh, little handout fool you. We're not going to be in Mark this morning. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, that would be great. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you are new with us or uh, have just recently been visiting, we're about to cover a little bit of family business. And uh, you are more than welcome to listen um, into that and peek into that. And so uh, just want to prepare you for that. We're going to start off with a, a few things that are just family issues. And so Stonegate family, a couple things. Number one, uh, and I'm not going to be able to recount all of this uh, because there's a lot here. So let me just hit the, the summation of it. So there's a part of me that's assuming that if you're part of the Stonegate family, you have listened and or been at the last couple of family meetings. But for a quick summary, in uh, early January, we felt like it would be a, a, an act of faith to, to be open-handed with a piece of property that we currently own and have paid for on George Hopper and 14th Street. And so we put that on the market. And at the same time, unexpectedly, another piece of property came to our attention that uh, we talked about at the last family meeting. And at the end of the day, we, we felt like it was a big enough deal and, a, and an intriguing enough thing that we needed to get in front of our church family, all of us be praying about that, fasting over that decision, if God would want us to do that. And we feel like we're now to the point where, uh, you know, unless something unforeseen happens over the next month or month and a half, that we feel like we're to the point where we can say with confidence that we feel like God is leading us down that road of purchasing that piece of property. So again, if, unless something unforeseen happens in mid-May, uh, we'll pull the trigger on that and close on 23 acres on 287 and Walnut Grove. And so that's, that's coming down the pike in, in mid-May. Now, in conjunction with that, we're also starting in April, May, and June, a three-month season of generosity. Now, in just introducing that and talking about that, I want to be really clear as to why we are doing that and why we aren't doing it, like the, the reasoning behind all that. And so let me tell you one reason that we're not doing it. It's not so we can pay for this piece of property. This piece of property is not the issue for, for Stonegate Church long term. This is not the big deal. And so one of the things we tried to demonstrate in the last family meeting was how uh, purchasing this, this piece of property makes perfect sense and would be a demonstration of wisdom in light of our no debt, low debt, just approach to things, that this would make perfect sense without us doing anything else financially, just in the normal scope of what we're doing right now. And so this is not about this piece of property. The way I would describe what this is about, uh, this three-month season of generosity, is uh, it is about a four-year, and I, I call it the conference center cliff. It's about a, a conference center cliff that we have out in front of us in four years. So in four years from now, and like four years goes by that fast, in four years from right now, there's going to be a point where the conference center says, it was great knowing you. We really enjoyed that, but good luck. And so we're going to be out of here. And it's at that moment that like, if you can picture that conference center cliff being the stage where we're going to have to jump off that cliff and figure out what we're doing. And so that's the big thing is we've got that cliff in front of us in four years. Now, this is where it gets really sobering. So part of the sobering news is that we have a low net, low debt, no debt approach to those things. We're not going to put ourselves in a position where we're going to be shackled to a lot of debt. We're not going to do that. And so we've, we've, that's part of the sobering news. The other part of the sobering news is when we take that first leap off and out of that, you know, you know off the cliff, when, when that moment happens, that's a six to eight million dollar leap. Yeah, take a deep breath. Okay, we're all back, right? Okay. So it's a six to eight million dollar leap when we, when we take that, 
that plunge. And so in light of that, we have to work really hard now at both praying and planning as to how we can jump off that cliff and actually survive it. And so uh, there's three things that, that we're in the midst of kind of doing in regards to that that we have on the slate over the next few years. One is this land. That, uh, and I'm not going to be able to explain this statement that I'm about to make, so you can go back and listen to the family meeting if you need more explanation. It's virtually a risk-free um, decision for us, virtually risk-free, that has the potential of a lot of upside, like potentially several million dollars of upside that could come out of that. And so well, that's one of the things that we're asking God to be in the middle of and, and working for so that we can make the leap off the cliff. Another thing that we're going to be doing is in 2014 and 2015, we're going to do a couple of years season, an, an extended season of generosity. So that's going to, you know, in 2014 and 2015, what we're looking at. But now we also want to take one more step now before we get to that, an extended season of a small three-month season of generosity, where we're asking all of our church family to get before God and, and figure out what extraordinary generosity would look like over a three-month period. But I want you to see that, that the big thing, it has nothing to do with this piece of land. It has everything to do with the conference center cliff that is four years away, that we have to work really hard at getting ready for that. And I really believe by the grace of God that when that day comes for us, we're gonna be prepared to jump and, and to jump well in that moment. But it's gonna take all of us as a church family being very sacrificial for us to get there and to make that, that plunge. Okay, so what I just described was a reason why we're doing a three-month generosity kind of a season. That's a reason. Now, I want to allow this sermon this morning to define and explain not a reason, like what I just described for, you know, the four-year conference center cliff, that's a reason. I want this sermon to describe and to define and to explain the reason for a season like this and for every other season of generosity that we'll ever have around our place. What is the reason? Like what, what is the thing we're going after in the midst of that? So this sermon is directed at that question. What is the reason? So let me introduce 2 Corinthians chapter 1 by saying this. If, uh, if in a high school there would have been an award that would have been like the most unlikely to be a pastor award, like that award, if that would have existed, I would have won that award in high school. And so I, I am as shocked as any person on the planet that I find myself doing what I'm doing today. And so now it's interesting, like part, watching how people to respond to pastors is always an interesting thing, you know? And so it's funny in like a variety of different ways how it can be a conversation stopper, a conversation starter, a little bit of all that in the midst of it. But one of the most intriguing and just kind of interesting, funny things is that people will, will oftentimes ask me a question like this. In so many words, they'll say, okay, I, I know that you're a pastor. I, I'm getting that. I see that. I know you've got that title. But what do you do? And my normal response is, nothing. I just work one day a week. It's awesome. You should try it, you know? And so uh, that's not the response. Um, now, there's a lot of things that you could say in response to the question, what, what, what does a pastor do? But I want to let Paul define that for us. Now, now, before we go to 2 Corinthians 1 here, I want you to, to remember, Paul is a pastor and a church planter. So this is Paul as a pastor talking to a church he planted in Corinth. Okay, so this is Paul, pastor, planter, saying, answering the question here for us, what do you do as a pastor? Like, what is that job? What, what's, what, what are you going after? Kind of what is, makes up that role? Here's his answer. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Paul says this, Not that we lord it over your faith, but here comes our answer, but 
This is what we do. This is the role of a pastor. This is the role of a minister. This is what pastors are going after. But we, talking about Paul and, and his crew here, his pastor friends, we, Paul, church planter, pastor, this is what we're after. We work with you for your joy. That's the role of a pastor. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So Paul, a pastor, planter, is answering the question, what do pastors do? And Paul's response is, pastors are people who help other people pursue their joy. Like this is what Paul, this is how he sees his life. That Paul is a man who when he thinks of his Big ambitions. So he's planting churches, he's pastoring, but what sits over all of that? He is a man who is helping other people pursue their joy. To pursue the things that's going to satisfy their soul. So if I'm answering the question, what is it, Rodney, that you do as a pastor? My answer, top level answer is, I help people pursue their joy. Now, now dad's in the room, pastors of your home. This is your role in your home to pursue and to help, help your family pursue the, their greatest joy. This is my role as a pastor of, of Stonegate, one of the pastors here. The, the, the thing that God has called me to do is to help our church family, to, to help the people who make up our church, to help us pursue our joy. To, to help us do that, to help us get there, to help us see all that God's offering us and to help us run to God for our joy. That's the role of a pastor, to help people, to point people to God as the source of all satisfaction and to encourage and urge them to run to God to satisfy their soul, to pursue their joy. So this is, this is Paul's role. This is my role. Now let's talk about this joy. I want to give you two things about this word joy that Paul is talking about here. In verse 24, two things about it. Number one, here's, here's the first thing about this joy. First thing we would say about this joy that Paul's talking about, that he's saying, I'm, I'm, my job is to help people pursue that joy, like this joy. Here's the first thing we need to know about this joy, that God is really, really serious about this joy. I got serious about this, like you pursuing your joy. Like he, he's very serious about that. Now it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, just when I look back over ministry life, I did eight years of student ministry. Now, just saying the word student ministry gives me flashbacks of like seventh grader, uh, graders high on pixie sticks that like literally I flinch just saying the word sometimes. So eight years of student ministry. But, but one of the, the, the most challenging things that I had to do in student ministry was by the grace of God, try to convince students. And it's just ironic that pastoring feels a lot like student ministry in so many ways. So like what I'm about to describe for the biggest challenge in student ministry is actually my biggest challenge now too. But by the grace of God, eight years of student ministry, trying to convince teenagers that God was not out to rob their joy, but to give them joy. Trying to convince them of that. I, there, there was something like hardwired into them that felt like this. That if, if, I, if I run after God, if I follow hard after God, like if I, if I do that thing and I totally push my chips in in that direction, here's what that's going to mean, this going hard after God thing. It's going to mean that, that life is going to be a drag. That's what it's going to mean. But if I push my chips into the world, that whole thing, if I, if I pursue that, if I go hard after that, that's where happiness and life and satisfaction and joy, that's where all of that's going to be for me. Like that, that problem right there was the problem 
of student ministry. That is like the thing by the grace of God that I was trying to convince students of. It is that like God has actually promised that in Jesus, he, is, he, he would give you everything that you're hoping for in the world. And, and that is like one of the primary things that God has given me the task of convincing you of by his grace is that everything you're looking for horizontally in that thing over there, this thing over there, that, that thing over there, everything you're looking for that God promises you that he's the one that can give it to you. Like he's not out to, to rob your joy, but actually to give you joy. Now, let me just try to reorient you around some of what God and the Bible has to say about this joy thing. So let me start in the Psalms. This will be up on the screen for you. So just a couple of things out of the Psalms, God talking about joy. Psalms 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, I just think it's interesting that he doesn't say serve the Lord. That he wants a particular type of service that has gladness underneath it. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalms 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord. That's a command. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. If you want to know what God is up to in the nations, if you don't know what God is doing, he is up to creating joy in the hearts of the nations. That's what God is up to here. Let, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalms 37, 4. Delight yourself. This is a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. You see that? Delight yourself in the Lord. Be happy. Keep your heart satisfied and content in the Lord. Be joyful in the Lord. Like God is really serious about this joy thing. Now it's interesting to me because um, I hear people say this periodically. They'll say something like, well, God doesn't command you to feel a certain way. And I always have this thought run through my head, like when somebody says that, of, have you read the Bible? Like the only problem with your statement is the Bible says something contrary to it. Like God throughout the Bible commands things like joy, things like grief, things like love, things like hope. All of those have emotions attached to it, feelings attached to it. You can't do any of those things without that. Right? And, and so God is really serious about that. Serious enough to look at you and say, delight yourself in the Lord. Command, be happy in me. Get your heart satisfied in me. Commanding that. That's how serious God is about it. Uh, we keep reading in the Bible and we see, we see Paul say statements like this. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Like that always means in every single circumstance and situation that there is a joy in God that can abide through all of those things. Every situation. Re re rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Like Paul is serious enough about this whole joy thing, rejoicing thing, that he actually says, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, I am working with you to get that sort of joy. Like my ministry, it's built on me helping you pursue that sort of joy. Jesus says something very similar. This is John 15, verse 11. So what is the ministry of Jesus about? What is he doing in his ministry? John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you. So he's preaching, he's speaking, he's teaching, he's doing all of that. These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So all I'm trying to say is throughout the Bible, we're seeing Paul, Jesus, we're seeing the Bible representing God, telling us God is really serious about you having a heart that is happy in God. You, you having a heart that is finding its joy and satisfaction in God. 
The Bible is really serious about that. Now, I want to anticipate this question and then answer it. I want to anticipate the question that would go like this. Well, but doesn't the Bible say stuff about self-denial? About denying yourself? I mean, that, that would seem that that's like robbing joy. Doesn't it say things about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus? And, and my answer is, it does say that, but I think it says more than that. So, so yes, but it says more than that. So l- let me help you see the more that it's saying in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It'll be on the screen for you. Now in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus is giving parables that describe the kingdom of God. So here's what he says in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, key couple of words here, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, now this metaphor or this parable is meant to be a picture of, of conversion. The moment that a person trusts in Jesus as a savior, and God rescues him, saves him. This is what it's picturing here in Matthew 13, 44. It's picturing this moment. This is conversion. This is what conversion looks like. It's when a person sees Jesus as so infinitely valuable that they are willing to, in that moment, let go of everything else to get him. That's conversion. And see, what, what really worries me when people talk about, are they a Christian or not? Everything is, is vocalized in terms of a decision. And nobody ever talks about the affections. See, it's just, I decided something. When, when this is saying, what, what happens in, in the life of a Christian, like in the moment a person becomes a Christian, is God gives them a hunger for Jesus. Like for the first time, they see Jesus as a treasure that would demand everything in their life. See, this is the point of the parable. That this guy, when he became a Christian, this guy, he let go of everything else in his life so that he could get Jesus. So I let go of all that so I could get this Jesus. And here's what the guy says. That was the best trade I've ever made. That's a Christian. I've just let go of everything. That's the best trade I have ever made. See, the the key words in here, the three words, in his joy. It feels to him like a no-brainer. Well, what else would I do? In light of that treasure and all these trinkets, why wouldn't I give up all of this for that? See, it's in his joy. Now, okay, so let's just answer the question now. So does the Bible talk about self-denial and sacrifice and all of picking up your cross, following? Yes, it does but not in the way that you think it does. See, it's not talking about ultimate self-denial. So in one way, we could say this. Does the Bible talk about that? Yes. The Bible talks about all those things. But in another way, we would say the Bible does not talk about your ultimate self-denial. The Bible is talking about you letting go of lesser pleasures so that you can have the great treasure, Jesus. Do you see what the Bible's talking about? See, this guy, he he wasn't consumed in self-denial here. That that made perfect sense for him. Yes, I'm going to deny self. Yes, I'm going to take up my cross and follow. Why? Because I get Jesus. That's a great trade. It's a wonderful trade. If we put this in food terminology, we might say it like this. What the Bible says is, let go of your Twinkies so you can have a well-cooked steak. Now, is there sacrifice in letting go of Twinkies? Yeah, there's, there's some sacrifice there. 
but, but not a, actually a lot for me, right? But, but, but listen, in compared to a well-cooked steak, nothing. This is what the Bible's saying. That yes, there's self-denial, but not ultimate self-denial. God is giving you him in Jesus, the ultimate treasure. So, so God is really serious about this, about you finding your hope in Jesus, you finding the, your satisfaction in Jesus, you finding um, like that thing that's going to quench your thirst, you looking to Jesus to quench it. Like that God is serious about you pursuing your joy. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, I am laboring, I am working with you for your joy, to help you pursue your joy. God's serious about it. Paul's serious about it. We should be serious about it. But this is going to walk us into the problem. Here's the second thing we could say about this joy. That although God is very serious about this joy, Although God is very serious about it, here's here's our problem. That we aren't serious enough about this joy. Look, our problem is although God is serious about it, we aren't serious enough about it. We don't care enough about our joy. This is the problem. And that's going to sound counterintuitive to some of us in the room. Just hang with me. This is where you need to like put the thinking cap on and walk with me down this road for just a few minutes. So, So think with me, lock in here. Let me give you three kind of statements underneath this idea that we don't care enough about our joy. We don't don't care enough about it. Here's statement number one. That everyone is searching for joy. Everyone is. This is part of what Ecclesiastes 3 means when it says that God has hardwired you for eternity. That God has put eternity in your heart. That he has hardwired you to have if you want to think of it as an abyss right at the center of your soul, God put that there in you. That God hardwired you to have a hunger deep in your soul. That God has hardwired you. He created you with a thirst deep in your heart. He hardwired you like that. And that hardwired deep thirst in your soul sets every human being on the quest for what's going to give them joy for what's going to fill that hole. That, that every, we are, maybe you could think of it this way. Part of what it means to be a human being and made in the image of God is that we are hardwired joy seekers. We are hardwired pleasure seekers. We all are. Now listen to Blaise Pascal, an old friend's philosopher, pick up on this and describe this. And I think this squares perfectly with the scriptures. Okay, this is what he says. Blaise Pascal says it this way. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step, but to this object, the object of their joy, the object of their lasting happiness, that that all men are, are motivated by that, he's saying. And he even goes on to say this. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. He's saying that that all men seek happiness, that it forms this drive shaft in people, this motivating force in people. Maybe you can think of it this way, that we are all joy-motivated people. You are, I am. This is part of what it means to be a human being, that God has put in us that abyss that we want something to fill and to satisfy. 
that we are joy-motivated people. Now, in trying to explain that, I've just seen that that's a little bit hard to just get your mind around. And so a couple of illustrations that I think, or or one illustration in particular that might be helpful for you would be to think of it in this way. Talking about us being joy-motivated people. That even when our options are limited, we still choose the road that promises the most joy. So let me just throw this scenario out to you. I want you to picture a scene where you walk out today, you're getting in your car and someone pulls up beside your car and pulls a gun out to you. And they say, give me your wallet or I'm gonna shoot you. Now in that moment, you have option A or option B. Option A goes like this. I'm not gonna give you the wallet, shoot me. That's option A. Option B goes like this. Here's my wallet, here's my car, here's anything you want, just don't shoot. Now, I'm taking option B, and here's why I'm taking option B, that even when my options are limited, I don't have the full range of options in this moment. I've got two options, option A and option B. I give him the wallet or I get shot. I'm going option B. Here's my wallet. Take it any day of the week, every day of the week, every moment of every, you've got it, right? I'm going that route. Why? Because in that moment, it is promising me the most joy. It's promising me that the most happiness and the most joy in life. This is what it means to be joy motivated. Even when our options are limited, we choose the route that will give us, the road that will give us the best promise of joy. Now he takes it even a step further and says, even people who commit suicide, this is what's going on. They're still joy motivated people. So option A for this person that is committing suicide, option A sounds like this. I could hang out here in the misery and hopelessness of of what life feels like right now. I I could do that or option B, I could end that misery right now. And the reason people commit suicide is because in that moment, they feel like ending it now promises more joy than sticking with it. So this, this is what he's saying, that all men are seeking happiness. And I, I think it squares perfectly with the scriptures that God has put in us this abyss, this thirst, and this hunger. And that is supposed to take us places. That God has hardwired us to be joy seekers. Okay, that's statement number one. Now here's statement number two under this idea of we don't care enough about our joy. Statement number two goes like this. That God is everyone is on the the search for for satisfaction. Everyone's on the search for joy. But here's the problem. Most people are half-hearted searchers. See, this is the issue. Most people are half-hearted searchers. So we stop at, at these things that give us spasms of joy, spasms of happiness, rather than allowing that thirst that God has put in us to take us where it should. That we have these detours. We stop way too soon. We don't care enough about our soul being actually satisfied. That we stop way too soon in that pursuit of satisfaction. Now, I want you to listen to C.S. Lewis. This this quote is one of the the couple this morning that I'm hoping has a shaping influence on our church family. So I want you to listen to this quote and and see what he's trying to communicate on how we are half-hearted This is the problem that we're half-hearted in our search for satisfaction, for joy. He he says it this way. And this is in his article called The Weight of Glory, which I would recommend. You can download it online. It's a free PDF for you to read it someday. So he says it this way. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels— 
If we consider that, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, namely for satisfaction, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're we're too half-hearted. He goes on to say, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So do do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that the problem that we have is that we are half-hearted in our pursuit of satisfaction. That we don't take that pursuit of satisfaction near far enough. Like what we do is we start taking these detours. We start taking the detour, trying kind of this, this dead end road, trying to find like, like that thirst and that hunger, that what will quench it. We, we go down the road of sex to try to do that. And it doesn't work. We go down the road of, of trying to get ambition and career. And if we can just get that promotion, that pay raise, then we'd be okay. And then we go down the marriage route. If we could just get married and our marriage be this much better, if we could just get kids and our kids turn out this way, we go down all of these detours trying to demand that mud pies satisfy our soul. And he's saying it's impossible. The things like marriage, things like kids, things like ambition, things like your career, things like a new house, things like just another gadget, just another thing. He's saying that they don't have the capacity to satisfy you. They don't have the capacity to do that. That you're demanding things from them that they can't deliver on. That you're demanding mud pies satisfy your stomach when a mud pie will never do it. Maybe you could think of it this way. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. That that we are the people making mud pies over here. Like we've got this thirst for satisfaction. And and we're trying to find where that satisfaction, like what will do it? What will quench that thirst? And and we're, we're consumed. We're detoured with all these mud pies when God over here is saying, listen, I'm offering you infinite joy. Everything you're wanting, I'm offering you. But, but you're thinking mud pies are going to do it when they won't do it. Maybe you could picture it this way. If you could picture that abyss that's in the deepest part of your heart, if you could picture that abyss being the size of the Grand Canyon, just picture that for a moment. You've got an abyss created by God in the deepest part of your soul, and that abyss is literally the size of the Grand Canyon. Like you are on one side, and unless it's really clear that day, you can't see to the other. And, and here's what a lot of us right now are trying to do. This is what the mud pie illustration is trying to show us, is that we've got this abyss in our heart that God's put there, and we are trying to take the pea-sized pebble, the little rock of marriage, and we throw it into the Grand Canyon, cutting our soul, thinking that that little pebble is going to do it for us. That's going to fill the abyss. And then that doesn't work, so we take money and possessions, we throw that into the abyss. Another little pea-sized pebble, as if that's going to fill the Grand Canyon. Then we take the little little pebble of sex, we throw that in there. Hey, do you see where this is going? We take career, we throw that in there. We think of promotion, throw that in there. We think, man, a change of circumstances, that's going to do it for us. If we can just change our surroundings right now, change the circumstances of our life, we'll throw that pebble in there. And C.S. Lewis is saying, listen, it's all mud pies. 
They cannot fill that abyss that God has put in you. Can't do it. So everyone's on the search for satisfaction, for joy. The problem is, is that we are half-hearted searchers. And here's the third statement under that. That search for satisfaction, that search for joy is meant to lead us to satisfaction in God. so, So see the picture. God has wired you in such a way that you have an abyss in your soul that's the size of the Grand Canyon. And there is only one Grand Canyon sized object in the universe. And it's God. I got to put that abyss in you, not so you would run to mud pies, but so you would run to him. That's why God put that abyss in your soul. Now listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. He goes on to say this. If, and, and man, I, I, mean, I pray that this might grab our attention this morning. He, he says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, like in other words, if, if I find in me an abyss that is wanting something to fill it, but nothing in this world can, can do that, nothing in this world can satisfy that, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The most probable explanation is that God created a world that you weren't supposed to find something here to satisfy that abyss. Most likely, God created a world in which he put that abyss in you so that you would actually look to God and all that he promises to be for you in Jesus to satisfy that ache of your soul. So so see, see how this comes together in the wisdom of God. God has said, on one hand, I'm going to hardwire every human being with that abyss, that hunger, that thirst for joy and hope and satisfaction and happiness. I'm going to hardwire that. Now, this is the problem in the middle. The problem is we, we turn God's gifts that are to function like appetizers. We, we turn God's gifts into the main course of that joy. This is the problem. See, all of God's gifts like marriage, like sex, like family, like kids, like career, like ambition, like promotions, like all of God's gifts are really meant to be appetizers. Appetizers aren't meant to fill you up. They're meant to wet your mouth for the main course. But but our problem is we start to turn all of these appetizers into the main course. See, you see the picture? This is our problem. We're trying to make appetizers the main part of the meal, and they were never meant to be the main part of the meal. See, all of God's gifts to you are meant to function like signposts. See, you're supposed to see God's gifts and think this. If there is a God in the universe that created that, how much more satisfying is he going to be? When you bite into a well-cooked steak, that should be a moment of worship where you say this, Oh my God, there's like a God out there that created that. How good is he going to be? Yeah. See, that, that's what that's supposed to do in us. But, but here's what we do. We turn the signpost into destinations. We, we turn God's gifts into destinations. So picture this analogy. I heard a guy illustrate it like this. That if you could imagine packing your family up to go to uh, Disney World. So you're on your way to Orlando and you are 100 miles out of Orlando with a, with a car full of family, wife, kids, the whole shebang. And and you're 100 miles outside of Orlando and you see a Disney sign. And the sign's got Goofy on it, Mickey, Minnie. I mean, the whole Disney crew is on that sign. And all of a sudden you whip the car over as fast as you can. You pull out the camping gear and you announce to the family, we are here, we have arrived. 
That is exactly what we're doing when we're trying to make mud pies, those things that will satisfy our soul. We are turning things that should be signposts to point us to the one who can satisfy us. We're we're turning those signposts into destinations. So see, see God, in his wisdom, God has created in you this abyss, this hunger, this thirst. He's hardwired you for that. And that hunger and that thirst is intended by God to lead you to God. That's what God is doing here. That is the wisdom of God in this world. He's put in you that thirst that nothing else can quench so that you would look to him to quench it. Here's how Augustine, the early church father, here's how he put it. He said this, you, talking to God here, you have made us for yourself, O God. You you have made us for yourself. So in other words, you created this abyss so that we would look to you. You have made us in such a way that we can only be ultimately satisfied when we look to you for everything we need. You you created us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, now can we just take a, a, a moment here and just address this? Because here's the truth for a lot of us in the room right now. Our hearts are restless. We're running from that thing to this thing to that thing, hoping that new thing is going to do it for us. We're restless. And what he's saying here is, listen, you're always going to be restless until you seek to have that thirst deep in your soul quenched by God. You're going to be restless until you get there, till you see that, till you run after God like that, for that. Now, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, isn't it interesting that Paul says this? It's actually work to help you see that as your joy. Is that, I'm, I'm just saying that seems a little, a little bit ironic. That Paul's saying, I actually have to work at helping people pursue their joy. Like I actually have to work at keeping people away from the dead end mud pies. I have to work at that to help them steer down the road to to like the one God who who can actually quench their thirst. I have to work at that. That that is hard work. He's saying this, that, that there is a sense in which we are all so prone to make mud pies out of God's gifts to demand it give us things it does not have the capacity to give us. And listen, that is the story of the people of Israel. That is their story. Mud pies, looking to a million other things to give them what only God could. It's interesting. I'm going to put this this verse up on the screen for you. Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God boils down all the problems with the people of Israel. And if you just read the Old Testament, there's a lot of problems, isn't there? I mean, these people are rebellious, stiff-necked. They are into more sin than the law allows. I mean, they, they have plenty of sin to go around. This is the people of Israel. He boils down all of their sin, all of their behavior problems, all of their issues into these two things. Now listen to, to watch these two things. Listen to this. He says this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Shocked at what? What should we be appalled at? Here's his answer. For my people have committed 
two evils, two. All of their issues boil down to these two things. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now, do you see what just happened there? God is telling us through Jeremiah that this is the, the, the root cause of the sins of the people of Israel is that I am promising to be for them a living fountain that can satisfy their soul, but they have turned from me as the one, the only one that can satisfy the deepest thirst of their heart. See, this is their, underneath all of their behavioral issue is this sin of turning from God as the one who can satisfy their soul. I love how one pastor said it. He said, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied in God. That when you boil all of our behavior issues down, here's what God is saying is underneath them. We have turned from God as the sole source of our satisfaction. We, we have turned from God as the fountain of living water and we are trying to make living water out of mud pies. Second evil. So that was number one. Second one goes like this. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So, so number one, they have turned from me that the source of satisfaction. Number two, they have turned to mud pies, to these broken cisterns, demanding that they give what they don't have the capacity to give. See, a cistern would be something that you would dig out to catch water. It would normally be lined with rock and that, that rock lining was meant to keep the water in and to keep the water clean. And God is saying this, the problem, when you look for your ultimate satisfaction in anything other than me, you are looking in a broken cistern. Your marriage is a broken cistern. Do you know that? It cannot keep your soul content. Your kids are a broken cistern. Your job is a broken cistern. Your circumstances are a broken cistern. They cannot hold a joyful heart. It is impossible for them to do that. Now, my hope for those of us in the room is that we would have a similar experience that Augustine had. I want you to listen to him describe the moment of his conversion. This is the moment he went from death to life. This is the moment God saved him. Now listen to him describe that moment. This will be up on the screen for you. We, we need more moments like this around here. He described it like this. How sweet, and, and by the way, this guy was like addicted to lust and sex. That, that's this guy's history. And he says it like this. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys those mud pies. How sweet it was to me to be rid of these fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. See, he was saying, I was looking to mud pies. Man, the search for satisfaction had not taken me far enough, but there was a day that God came and rescued me, opened my eyes to he is the sovereign joy. And in that moment, God erased those mud pies, pushed those mud pies away, and the sovereign joy, like the satisfier of our soul, took the place of the mud pies. Man, we could use some of that. Now, before we keep going, let me just apply this over the room. The, the truth is that there are a lot of us in the room right now this morning who we are looking to everything but God to satisfy our soul. 
I, mean, I, I just want to give you this, this warning and, and just this encouragement. Is they can't do it. It's impossible. You are asking what can't happen. You are asking of God's gifts to you what they don't have the capacity to deliver to you. It's impossible. That God is saying, man, I am it. I alone can satisfy the deepest aches of your heart. Like joy in me. This, this is where you find fullness of joy and joy forever. It is only in me. And God, I pray that we would be a people who rest in that. Man, who, who sit in that. Okay, I want to finish by tying joy and generosity together. So we're going to take the whole kind of full circle here and jump back to where we started this morning. I started by saying this. One of the reasons that we are doing a three-month season of generosity and or every other season of generosity is because we have an issue out in front of us that that we're having to prepare for. Like right now, we have a four-year cliff in front of us that when we get to it, we're either going to fall off the edge of or we're going to fly off the edge of one or the other. And so we're, we're having to prepare for that. So, and I said this, that is a reason, but that is not the reason. If you want to know the reason, and, and by the way, let me just kind of clear the air with this because people get weird when you start talking about money in a church. So let me just clear the air by saying, and I've said this a million times before, that I am not after your money. I don't want things from you. I want things for you. Namely, this is what I want for you. This is what I'm after. If you want to know like what the reason is on why we would do a three-month season of generosity, here it is. Because I am working for your joy. That's why. That this three-month season of generosity, from my perspective, this is an issue of joy for us as a church family. It is an issue of joy. And my hope is that God would use this three-month season of generosity for the good and the joy of our church. So let me just throw out two reasons and kind of two explanations behind that as to how that works itself out. Number one, on on why this is a season that that I am praying that God would increase our joy. Why I'm saying that this is a season that that I'm working for our joy in the sense of a three-month season of generosity. Here's one reason. Number one is that money and possessions— are seductive substitutes for joy in God. Money and possessions in your life, in my life, in everyone's life are seductive substitutes for joy in God. It's interesting in the Bible that there's 2,350 verses that that deal with money and possessions, far more than prayer and a lot of other really important things. Jesus, 15% of what he said dealt with money and possessions. 15%. Now, I think it should beg the question, why does the Bible give so much real estate to talking about that? Why is that? Answer. I think this is the answer. It's because God loves you and he knows how seductive money and possessions are to the human heart. That that is why. He knows that, that money and possessions offer very seductive promises. Like if you get me, if you can just have me, then you'll be okay. And then when you get that, it's, if you could just have one more of me, if you could just have the security that I provide, if you could just have the, the freedom that I can provide, then you'll be okay. Then you'll really be satisfied. It is seductive promises. So seductive. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus. And listen, there is a part of the rich young ruler who he wanted to follow God. He wanted Jesus. But when Jesus said, it's me or money, you decide. He could not let go of his money. 
See, let, let that be a warning of how seductive money and possessions are. That when it comes down to it, the rich young ruler, although he wanted God, he was believing in the seductive promises of money and possessions to the point that he could not let go of those money and possessions to get Jesus. See, if we go back to Matthew 13, he was the guy that was holding on to his trinkets when, when the treasure was sitting beside him. But, but the trinkets offered just such a seductive promise that if you just have me, you'll be okay, that he could not let go of them. This is the reason that 1 Timothy 6, this will be on the screen for you. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this. This is Paul speaking. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs or many griefs or many sorrows. So the Bible is not against money. The Bible just warns of the seductive nature of money. Let me just be clear in that. But, but can I just tell you that no one ever starts out as a Christian thinking this, man, I can't wait for the day that I totally shipwreck my faith. I can't wait for the day that I totally wander off from this thing. I can't wait for the day that, that I take th these, these actions and I pierce my heart with them, that I'm pierced with many griefs. I can't wait for that day. Nobody ever says that. But you know, a lot of people do that. Nobody ever starts out thinking, man, that's the end game. That's what I want to go after. I want to wander away from this faith that I've just walked into and I want to just stab my heart with a million griefs. That's what I want. Nobody ever does that, but a lot of people, a lot of people get there. And I'm just trying to say this, it would be foolish for us this morning to think that we might not be on that path. It would be foolish for us to think that we're not capable of getting there. So see, seasons like this for me are massively important to keep us away from a love of money, to keep me away from a love of money. Now, I don't want to believe in the seductive promises that money and possessions give, and I don't want you to believe in those. So that would be my first statement on connecting joy to generosity, that money and possessions are seductive substitutes for joy in God. And here would be the second thing. And, and by the way, if you're the person that is mad that we're talking about money, like if you're the person that like literally your blood pressure rose a couple of numbers, your face got a little bit red when I just said anything about money. If you're that person, can I just encourage you to make sure you hold up the mirror in front of your heart? I think if you just do that, you would see the love of money has tentacles wrapped around your heart. That's why you feel that way at the end of the day. So here's the second thing to say about joy and generosity that giving creates greater joy both now and forever. That, that giving, generosity, creates greater joy both now and forever. And let me just break down the now part. Like one of the best ways to keep your heart free from a love of money and free to enjoy God for all that he promises to be for us in Jesus, one of the primary ways you can keep your heart away from that love of money is by giving. Like every time you give, this is what you're saying. You are reminding your heart of Luke 12, 15, that my life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Every time you give, you're reminding yourself of that. Every time you give, you are reminding yourself that money does not hold my future, that money is not, does not hold my joy, that money does not, that cannot deliver on the happiness that I crave, that money cannot satisfy my soul. Every time you give, you're reminding yourself that God alone can do those things. So there is joy now to be had in giving. 
But there's also joy to be had forever. Now, let me just throw this on the screen for you and let you deal with it because it's tough. Matthew 6, verse 19 should be on the screen for you. It says this, talking about there, there is also joy that comes forever in generosity. Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, Jesus is not against investing. Jesus is against bad investing. And this is what he's saying here. That every time you invest time, talent, and treasure into the kingdom of God, into gospel expansion endeavors, Anytime you do that, you will temporarily lose those things, but you will eternally gain those things. Are you seeing what he's just saying there? That there is a way that you can store up treasure for later. Like when you invest things into the kingdom of God now, gospel expansion now, you temporarily lose those things, but you eternally gain those things. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says it like this. He says, the treasure principle is this. You can't take your money and possessions with you, but you can send them on ahead. That, that's the treasure principle. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. He, he's saying this, that you can either seek to enjoy them now, like have a spasm of joy with those now in your short, brief little life, or you can forsake those things now and enjoy those things forever. See, in some way, Jesus is saying this, that our giving now actually creates for us more joy in heaven later. Now, I don't know how all that works, but all I know is that's what he's saying. That there is a, there is a connection between generous giving now and more joy later for all eternity. Now, I have to ask the question when I read that, the question goes like this. Do I believe that? I mean, seriously, do I believe that that is true? I mean, do you believe that that's true? See, and if I believe that that is true, that generosity now creates more joy now and more, more joy for all eternity, if I believe that's true, and I believe that Paul defines my role as helping you pursue your joy, so bringing both of those two things together, if I believe both of those two things, you know what that's going to create in me? A constant posture toward you of me always urging you and me, encouraging you and me to give in extraordinarily generous ways. That's what it leads me to. So th this is why I say that this is not about land. This is not, the primary reason is this three-month season is me working for your joy. That's what I'm after. That, that's what I'm, I'm praying that God would produce in us more joy as we give generously. So let me, let me just clarify. Um, three months of generosity is what we're heading into, April, May, and June. And this is what we're, we're asking everyone in our church family to do, for you to get before God, for you to ask the Spirit of God to clarify where a love for money is in you. And I think it would be good for you just to assume that it is somewhere. I assume that when I think about me. To, to ask God to clarify where that is, and then for us to get before God and ask what would extraordinarily generous giving look like for these three months? 
And I can't answer that question for you. I, I want you to get before God and answer that. And here's the question, that, that, and here's maybe the statement that, that would kind of describe what it is that we're asking. That we're praying that everyone in our church family, that for this three-month season, that it would require more faith in regards to, to, to giving, money and possessions. It would require more faith than any other moment of generosity ever has. That's what we're asking. That this would be a moment that requires more faith, requires more trust in God, more belief that God is who satisfies, not money and possessions, more belief in that than at any other point of generosity in your life, in my life. So what I'm asking of me, that's what we're asking of you, to get before God and wrestle with that. Because we are out for a church that is gospel-dependent people, dependent upon God, trusting in God, to be the one that can satisfy the deepest aches of our heart. Let me land the plane with this uh, real quick. If you want to just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just point out one verse to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just answering the question, how do we get that? How do we get generosity worked into the bones of our church, into our bones specifically? How do we get that? How do we, how do we get there where we are willing to open up our hand, like Matthew 13, to give everything away so we can get the treasure? How, how does that happen? It's interesting. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church in first, or 2 Corinthians 8 to give generously. That's what he's encouraging them to do in this chapter. But he doesn't do that by berating them. He doesn't do that by beating them over the head. He doesn't do that by any of those things. He encourages generosity in them by 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Look at verse 9. For you know, this is how he encourages generosity. If we want to be a generous people, this is what we've got to see. For you know the grace, the giving, the gift. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's how he's saying that you work generosity into the bones of a church, into your bones, personally my bones. It's when we start to see how generous God has been to us in Jesus. That we start to see that this is how generous God has been to us, that he sent his son. He, he gave, he graced, he, he gave his son for us. That, that Jesus gave for us, that, that Jesus left the, the, the comforts of heaven. He exchanged the crown of heaven where he's king for a cross, where, where Jesus left the, the wealth and the riches of heaven, trading those for the rags of a manger. When we start to see how generous God has been toward us, that, that we're in poverty, but, but God who is rich made himself poor so that we who were poor could be rich in him. It's when we start to see how generous God has been toward us, how he has gone the extra mile, been extraordinarily generous toward us, that we open up our hand and begin to be extraordinarily generous toward him. That's how it happens, is when we start to have our soul soaked in the generosity of God before us. The, the, your internal grasp of the gospel, like how well your heart, you get it and believe it and see it and love it and live it. One, one of the best ways, one of the best indicators of how well you grasp the gospel is how much and how generous you are in giving. It's just how it works. When we see God's generosity towards us, it makes us generous people. And when we're generous people, here is the great news for you and I. It leads to joy upon joy. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.
For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.